0: Catholic. No, they take you to both places. This is, that's what's interesting about it. It takes you, you know, and, and our Americans' perception of how the troubles are over is very wrong-headed. Right, right. There's still a wall between the Catholic and the Protestant sections of Belfast.
1: I was there in 1999, and I remember we drove all the way up, you know, from like Donegal and up to the very top, and then came down through Derry. By the way, you can um, you can tell a person's uh, affiliation by w- what they call that town, yes. Londonderry yeah, or, or Dairy. Right. And you know there was this big closure because there was a some sort of orange. Oh, March. orange March. And yeah. So we're like, screw that. We're gonna, you know. Yeah. But yeah, the Shankill Road, and then there's the Falls Road. Yeah. We uh, went it went.
0: It was there. very. It was fascinating because you see that someone else's view, like the view you get, is sanitized. Yeah. here um and it was it was kind of sad obviously but it was really interesting um and the cab driver was great he does these tours and Stuart. did you go by that it.
1: big catholic c- cemetery where they had all the bobby sands
0: yeah, oh yeah. murals and all that yeah. stuff? oh yeah uh wow. and, you know it's funny is what the murals were a, a really interesting aspect of it because they you know we always got shown on t v the Bobby Sands mural and other other murals are we uh, la- Why
1: do not you go ahead and get us started I think, and,
0: we'll... and there were murals that of course we never saw on t v because they would have worked to get because there are p l o murals supporting the p l o uh you know, so um, the, you don't show that to Americans, right? Right. Because it'll, it'll hurt the support for it. And then you go to the Protestant side, and there are murals on the Protestant side. And there was one mural, uh, like several stories tall, of, uh, you know, a masked gunman holding a, a K, K-47. I mean, stories tall. Yeah. And this is allegedly after the troubles are over. So uh, things
1: it's, are kind of percolating along nicely I I think right now.
0: They weren't for a while, they yeah. started yeah. And every time marching season always goes Yeah. I know. And I'm not Irish by the way, even <laughs> though I have a great Irish name. Uh I yeah. a situation in third, nine of Beirut and everything was falling apart and it was once on the, the most side, beautiful city.
1: Yeah. Hit yeah. Hmm. Uh, uh, Swinson's last book about, you know, set in the seventies and.
0: No, I I didn't read it. Oh man, it's
1: so good. Yeah. So you, read the, you read the book called the By uh, Tim Pat Coogan. Yeah. He did. <laughs> I have no, I haven't. I, I mean, I could BS and say I have. I I know of it. It's a big old tome. But he's written a bunch of books on uh like devilera and all those guys are we live pk <laughs> okay we're live are we hey everybody um yeah we're just talking about Ireland yes. and Belfast and I guess there is this we can talk about that it does relate in some way um but uh good evening everybody um Patrick from the poison pen here and it's uh it's always a treat and an honor to welcome. My good friend, Reed Farrell Coleman, back to the store. It's been way too long, Reed. It's been
0: way too long for me. Uh, it's like a uh, reunion tour, the yeah. lot of this book tour. Because I, have, I haven't been to all these places in three years, since before the pandemic.
1: Before the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're going to be talking about um, Reed's brand new book, obviously, Sleepless City. Killer killer novel. The first in a n- brand new series. And... Um, Boy, it, we, it's funny. We're talking in the back and kind of getting into some of the material we're going to go over. But this book, um, it, it does a, a lot. There's a lot going on in this book. It's really about one of these books. It's about cops. It's a book about now, the nature of law enforcement, the nature of justice, of nature, right and wrong. Yeah, some big, some big themes. Then uh, journalism plays a huge right. role in this book. Uh-huh. Um, so tell us a little, tell us a little bit about it.
0: Well. It's it's an interesting thing. So, this book grew out of, I didn't have a contract. I I left Putnam and I left doing the Jesse Stone series. Let's say, I left voluntarily as I was getting shoved out the door. Uh, You know, that happens in all sorts of businesses and it kind of happened there. So, when I left Jesse Stone, I also left my Gus Murphy series. So, I was kind of like, well, what should I do next? And I I was having a conversation with my agent Shane Salerno, and Shane is a famous screenwriter, so it's not like talking to most agents, because he he's a very accomplished writer. If you've seen Avatar, Way of the Water, he wrote, he was one of the screenwriters of that.
1: Also wrote a Salinger yeah, biography, I, right? Yeah, he uh,
0: he uh, there's a Salinger documentary that he was the producer of. He, he's, he's he um. Oh uh, what was the space movie he wrote um the one with bruce willis and and uh john fer, fer- Armageddon. no not Armageddon so he wrote okay. he they wrote that screenplay so you know so when I talk to him, it's like talking to another writer uh and so we were kicking around ideas for where to go next, which is not something I usually do. I usually just write what I want to write but uh, when you're looking for a contract, you know, this is my career. It's how I earn a living. Um, so he came up with this character who uh, is kind of a fixer. Uh, Ray Donovan with a badge. Uh, but not one who uh, is just cold-hearted. One who has a big heart and uh, gives a, cares mostly for the least amongst us. Um, and he's a cop who is not a well-loved cop because, uh, as you probably know if you're mystery readers, um, he he Nick Ryan comes from a cop family, three generations, like firemen, right? They're family, you know. They're, so he's third generation, and his father uh, testified voluntarily at a corruption hearing. Now, he, he testified against people who were protecting drug uh, lords, but he's a rat, and so the son of a rat is a rat. So he's, not, he's a very good detective, he's very good at undercover work, but he's hated as much as his father is. So he's not a beloved cop. Um, and he's done two tours in Afghanistan, And he comes home, and he's working as a detective, and there's somebody who gets a, a criminal, a serial killer, who gets off on a technicality and won't be tried again. And he decides this person needs killing. And when he goes to carry out justice, his world is turned on its ear, and... I don't want to give away too much, but he's a very complex character because his tours in Afghanistan, and when you read the book, you'll see there's an incident that takes place in Afghanistan which codifies his beliefs about what's right and what's wrong and what's just and what isn't just. So he's a very conflict. He thinks he knows what right, wrong, and justice are, but as he performs his job, he learns maybe it's not as easy as that. Maybe it's not as sharp and clear as he thought it was.
1: But he has this ability to kind of go into this sort of calm place inside of him. Uh, it, you know, and that's why he's such, so good at his job. Right. You know, I does... think
0: we all know people like that who are amazed. Uh, I'm sure as a fireman, there were always guys who were in the worst situations, were just cool. Yeah, they'd zen out. And that's Nick. He, you know, just, he, you know, as I write in the book, there's the storm and there's the eye of the storm, and Nick is always in the eye. He's always, in fact, he uh, played basketball for Zavarian in Brooklyn and was in the Catholic High School Championship game at Madison Square Garden, cool as could be. I mean, could you imagine, you know, what that's like? And, you know, he was just, he's always, and his teammates used to call him Chili, because he he could zen out. And and so that helps qualify him for this job he gets offered. Right.
1: And, um, you know, I mentioned that it, it's really a book about now uh, in so many different ways throughout the, the course of, of the book. And in the back, we were talking a little bit about, you know, can you date sort of this era of time, post 9-11, through, say, 2016, maybe? Yeah. That's my date, which I might be off. But, um, you know, and then it kind of ushers in this kind of new era. And um, I don't know. Uh, y- you talk well, about New York in particular. You know, yes. th- that the vibe on the street was changing a little bit over time. Well,
0: you know, the thing is after 9-11, 9-11 resonated, as, as anybody who was there, it resonated in a way in which very few things have. Uh, I I always say there are two times in New York City's history since I was alive that basically stopped the city. Son of Sam and 9-11. I mean, New New York is a hard city to stop, right? Not even the blackouts really stopped New York City, but Son of Sam, people, everybody was holding their breath. And then 9-11. Um... And then until the pandemic, basically, you know, like there's pre-9-11 and post-9-11, and then there's pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. So, so as I was telling Patrick, never in my life have I, and this is my 32nd published novel. Yes, I will get it right eventually. Uh, um, so I have never let the outside world into my writing you know the world i conceive is the world i write i'm writing about and i don't try i try to actually shut out the noise of the outside world and in this book i finished this book just you know a few months before the pandemic hit and then when the pandemic hit there were certain incidents that happened that i actually changed the book and rewrote parts of the book based upon stuff that happened in During the pandemic, and you'll recognize it, and the book is better for it. so it's the only book I've ever written which is really about now. You know it's about now and the world we live in, whereas you know my other books were you know the world in my head," basically, and the world of my childhood or the or you know the world I lived in, in Suffolk County. Um, so that was interesting for me, and I hope it's interesting for readers.
1: Well, it, it's funny because there are spoilers that we can't give away, right. but a lot of the a lot of the stuff is you know outlined right at the beginning, so we can we can get into some of the right. stuff. Um, you know, the central premise that's stated very early on uh, is you know what's uh, what's one cop gonna do against a rigged system? Right, and well, uh,
0: you know that's that's one of the themes of the book. Right. is you know, uh, and in the, the prologue of the book is one of the things that I added. Interesting. So the there was no prologue originally, but it needed to be there. And the thing was one of the f- recurring themes of the book and you'll see is think about this. We've had the war on drugs. Uh, I'll use Don Winslow always talks yeah. about this. We've had the war on drugs for what, 50 years now? spent $200 billion on it, and as Don Winslow always says, if this is winning, I'd hate to see losing. <laughs> so if you're a cop, a drug cop, a narc, right, and, and you, let's say you have a great record and you've arrested you know, countless dealers and taken tons of coke or fentanyl off the street, has it stopped the drug trade? You know, have have the best homicide detectives stopped homicide? You know, being a cop is a reactive job, you know, not a preventive job. So that frustration is also a theme of the book, is even if you're the best detective, the best uniform cop, the best cop of any kind, there's how much does that matter? And that's a theme... Because Nick now matters, and you'll you'll see why
1: he matters, I hope right yeah um, and uh you know it's funny you, you were you you kind of present him, it's very interesting you present him as somebody who is a black and white thinker, you know, and who's able to but you know, as we learn, he's really not <laughs> you know I mean he, a lot of a lot of the the issues that he's dealing with, you know, pr- police brutality comes up as a big theme in the book. Um uh, yeah, it says most people's moral code featured flexible boundaries. Nick's lines were sharply drawn. Yeah, and I think I there's a line in there that most people's moral codes are drawn
0: in uh flexible shades of gray. Flexible shades, shades of, of gray. Right? <laughs> You know, Nick thinks. Then that—that's always the interesting thing. One of the lessons you learn as a writer is uh, your character. It's often taught as your character has to grow during the course of a book, like the arc of a book. A character has to grow. I like to think of it: a character has to change, mm-hmm. not necessarily grow. Sometimes they change for the worse. Uh, that's not, Nick doesn't, in my opinion, he doesn't change for the worse, but he certainly changes. From where you start to where you end, right. Nick changes. Um, and, and his thinking about certain subjects change. He changes them by his own experience and why stuff that happens to him changes his, his, his experience of things. Um, I loved writing this book. I really did. I mean, there are books I've written... I, I like every book I write, but there there are some I love more than others. Like, you know, we all tell our children we love them equal. And I only have two, so it was easy for me <laughs> to love them equally. And a boy and a girl, so it's, you know. But, you know, when you have a big family, right? There Inevitably, there are some kids you love more than others. Or I have four cats. I love some more than others. Um, <laughs> um, and... This book I really loved because I loved the the first book in a series. What's the most fun for a writer is world building. And even though this is New York, and I've written a lot about New York, this is a different New York. uh, Because Nick has to work, sometimes as I describe it, Nick can work between the, the grit beneath the city's fingernails, but the next day can be in a sudden place, which is the Upper East Side, with a, in a co-op with a view of the 59th Street Bridge. You know, so Nick operates in all sorts of worlds and right. all sorts of economic classes, so it was kind of fun, you know, to have put him in all these different places.
1: Well, I mean, we learned fairly early on, um, you know, that he, w- when he went to war, when he went to Afghanistan, he broke up. With uh, uh what's her name, Shana? Shayna, right. Um, who comes from a wealthy family. Right. Uh, tell us a little bit about about her and how that yeah, their well, relationship.
0: Well, it's it's funny because it goes back to nine eleven. Uh, Shayna is a, 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 a the daughter of a wealthy f- financier. Nick is uh, Irish Catholic. She's Jewish, um, and where they meet is at a memorial for the people who died at uh, the Trade Center uh, for her father's company. So it's a memorial, and Nick's Uncle Kenny was one of the employees, so that's why he's there. And the, the guy who owns the company, his daughter's there, and he holds the door for her. And his he breath caught in his throat at the sight of her, and he's never stopped you know he he went to war he did two tours and he shows up at her door at her door one day and she opens the door and what happens to him that hasn't gone away even though they've dated into their 30s you know he sees her and this is his reaction to her still so even though they've broken up and i love that scene you, it's early in the book and writing that was like i uh, their writers don't love every scene they write, they have to do work. Um, you know, there are chapters we call work chapters where you have to move the story along. You know, let's face it, not it, they can't all be gems. But that chapter, like, I loved writing that
1: chapter. And she has a bit of a surprise for him, yes, which well, we will, we, not, we will get not get into that. But uh... I'll not give uh... a <laughs> well, we can talk a little bit about, um, Let's talk about Ricky Corliss. Sure. You, you mentioned early on, you know, and, and by the way, you, this is a book, as I said, about so many different things. It's about law enforcement. Has anybody misinterpreted this book as being an anti-cop book? Not yet, and it isn't an anti-cop a, It cop isn't, book. absolutely. As I, I, I did
0: an interview recently in which I said whether you are a defund the policer yeah. or you have a Blue Lives Matter sticker on the on your bumper, no one really thinks there shouldn't be police of course not nobody you know minority communities suffer the most when you take police out now that doesn't excuse this that that is in no way an excuse of George Floyd or any of the other killings that's not it's not that's this is not an apology for any of that so it's neither an apology for that nor is it pro, you know, right, pro. Right, right. What it is, is my take on reality. And it's my take on Nick's reality. And I also put him in situations I was which are say. really difficult. And I think people will look at it and say, he handled that well. Not right. Nick, but me. That I handled it well. And I'm not taking sides. There's an author's note at the end, right? Have, did you, you, yeah. Why don't you read the author's note at the end? yeah because i'm going to ask to read something so was
1: this in the arc
0: yes It, it is it's okay
1: uh author's note is nick ryan a hero it's not for me to say One of the reasons I choose to write crime fiction is that it allows me to place my characters in high stakes situations under stressful circumstances. Situations where they're faced with difficult, sometimes all but impossible moral decisions. I've certainly done that to Nick in Sleepless City. Yes, indeed. Um, And while the main focus of the novel is entertainment, I hope that as you were reading, you asked yourself what you would have done in Nick's shoes. Yeah. And you don't give him a lot of easy outs you know what fun is that yeah right no I mean and you know you you
0: said this is a book about now right Mm. and is there shouldn't be easy outs now so uh you know I, I did an interview today by the way when you're on book tour you do a lot of interviews so I did an interview today and uh Someone, you know, said, you know, crime fiction, you know, at the end. And I said, in my books, in the end, you, you know, sometimes people are not pleased. So I, my, I've never written books thinking, you know, what's really important at the end of the book to restore balance to the world. And, and I quoted Eddie Muller. You know, do you ever watch Turner Classic Movies? And Eddie Muller is the, the, the uh, host of Noir Alley. And I know Eddie. And Eddie and I once did a panel together, and it was on noir, and I said, Eddie, you know, I'm not really a noir writer, I'm a hard-boiled writer, and he said, you're the most noir writer, because truth in your books always makes things worse. Uh, Yeah, 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 so... uh, and that's I t- a good that's insight. High I, I, I take that as high praise. So you, while while I have resolution in the book, you know, resolution doesn't always mean, you know, you know, so, so somebody's assumed murdered, right? Right. And ten years later, you find the body. Does that make anything better? Yeah, you get, you can bury the body, but it doesn't. the The hurt is still there. So there's that myth of closure. Yeah, closure know? is the uh, what a myth. It <laughs> really is a myth.
1: Do you uh, remember uh, James Elroy's definition of noir?
0: Oh yeah, can I say it? Sure. Yeah, on page one, everybody's fucked, and then things get worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's quoting James Elroy. is
1: not yeah. yeah, but it is a really good definition of noir. Um, um, well, getting back to the the business about this being a book about the police and about cop culture in a lot of ways. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you know, maybe some of the research you did into that world or cops that you might know. But um, one of the situations with Ricky Corliss early on, you know, he's Ricky a...
0: Corliss is the pedophile serial killer. Right. And and if if I can, Absol- can I read... Please. Can I borrow this? It's easier. It will be easier for yeah. me to hold. Yeah. So So fill some time while I find this. Okay, I'm there. Okay, so juggling is not one of my skills. No, it's fine. Um, So I, one of the uh, titles I get hung with all the time is I'm the hard boiled poet or the noir poet laureate. So that's a great, I, I mean, I'm very proud to be have been called those things. And in Brooklyn, I was called many other things, uh, <laughs> of which I am less proud. Um, so one of the things that I, I really enjoy about that title is that I get to be lyrical about some gruesome things. And this is a section that di- relates directly to the Ricky Corliss stuff. So it's very brief because... I learned a lesson a long time ago. Leave people wanting more, not less. Leave people smiling like this instead of snoring. So this is chapter four, the beginning of chapter four. Nick had killed before. Killing at a distance was an abstraction. Most of the time, you couldn't hear the screams of the dying. Close up was something else. Tough to fool yourself when you made a man's chest explode and stood in the crimson mist of his atomized blood, when you breathed it in knowing that coppery taste in your mouth was the vaporized remnant of a dead man's soul. This was different. This was an execution, a pale deliverance. No orders from above, no kill or be killed. There was justice and there was right. They weren't always the same thing. Cops learned that the first day on the job. When he looked down at Ricky Corliss, naked and on his knees, Nick didn't know whether what he was doing amounted to justice or right, both or neither. What he knew was that it needed to be done. Nick had dealt with murderers on the street and in war, but very few had earned killing the way Ricky Corliss had. He had kidnapped, tortured, and raped five eight-year-old boys before burning their wrecked bodies. Perversely, the folds of Ricky Corliss's pink, nearly translucent flesh reminded Nick of a newborn's. Having spent the past half hour alternating between denial and defiance, Corliss was running out of both. Executing him wouldn't be enough. Nick understood that vengeance was inherently disappointing. Death couldn't undo things. It didn't blot out an evil man's existence. It didn't erase him from the pages of history or cleanse the people whom he had touched. What it did was stop one evil man. That would have to suffice. I wish I'd Excellent. written that. <laughs> oh, I did.
1: <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the loyalty that um, that Nick feels to his former partner, or his partner, Yes. is it, is, Pete, is it safe Pete, to to tell what happened to Pete because it's yeah, fairly Pete, early. Yeah.
0: So that's none of the early stuff I give you, you. You'll still want to read it anyway to get a fuller version of it. But the, the, the guy who trained him to be a detective and his best friend Pete Moretti um, was the de- lead detective on Ricky Corliss's case. And he knew the case was weak and planted blood evidence and was found out. So that he was thrown off the job and he he committed suicide. He pulled the plug, as Michael Michael Connolly will refer to, or he ate his gun, in a, at the MacArthur Inn in, in uh, Bohemia, across from the airport. Um, so and that that motel comes back mm. later on in the yes. book, uh, and um, so Nick is a avenging his partners suicide and the shame his family had to suffer and the families of the boys who were murdered but even then nick realizes even if i do this what does it accomplish so it accomplishes one thing it it, he could
1: never hurt anybody else so talk about about research with with the cop culture and some of the well, um, you
0: know, it's funny, when new writers will ask, come up to me and say, well, how do you get cops to talk to you? And, and I said, the trick is getting them to shut up. It's not getting them to talk to you, right? You go to a, a cop bar or you know, buy them a beer and cops will tell you endless stories. Uh, and that's fine. And, but, but the thing for me, and it's a, true about all the research, the human research I do, is I'm not interested in the stories, right? Cops will tell you endless stories, and they're funny. And you drink a little, and they get really funny, and, and they're, they're great. But I'm not a writer to repeat other people's stories. What I'm interested in is people's attitudes. So cops never say, you got that all wrong. I've never had a policeman say to me, you got that all wrong. What they say is you got it right, because it's not the story; it's what they, how they perceive the world. That's what interests me. So there's a lot of black humor, I'm assuming. Yeah, oh yeah, there's a lot of dark (laughs) gallows humor. Uh, Understandably, Um, you know, a cop's world, and especially in New York City, is it can be a very ugly world. Um, And the the strange thing is, a lot of cops come from where we come from. Well, I come from Brooklyn, but we we lived out in Suffolk County on the island, right? And so, you know, there's a lot of cops in New York City. Like when I grew up, cops came from the boroughs. They came from New York City, right? Now they mostly don't. They mostly come from Long Island or um, Westchester or uh, Rockland County, the surrounding counties. And it's a lot of white kids who've never really had contact with minorities or deep contact with minorities Um, in fact once we had a minor car accident near uh uh in williamsburg and the cops that showed up one of them went to high school with my daughter (laughs) so you know so it's kids from out on the island so one of the characters in the book, Mar- Martella Sharp, uh, a uh, very seasoned African-American officer who wants to stay in uniform. Why? Because he feels it's his duty to kind of get those white kids from Long Island or Westchester or Rockland County acclimated to the world they're going to police. He's
1: kind of the Bodhisattva of police. Yeah, he's also one of the moral voices in the book. And he worked with uh, Ryan's all father. The, all the Ryan's. Yeah. yeah, we haven't mentioned Sean yet. Oh. he's a he's he's, <laughs> he's had some trouble. Sheep. He's the black sheep in <laughs> the family, yeah. but also a cop. Yeah, he's, he's from a cop family. He's from a cop family. Yeah. Um, I mentioned at the beginning. This is uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the. I don't know. I don't even know how to bring this up, but. We're in the post-truth era, right. you know. When it comes to so many things, we were talking in the back about um, this is a book that has to do with journalism and um, conspiracy theories and just yeah, there's all the batshit stuff that yeah. we deal with these there's days. A, there's
0: a character in the book who uh, Nick knows, who's his is a secondary character, but who I I love. His name is Lenny Feld, and he lives. In the basement of a synagogue on Ocean Parkway in Brooklyn, and um, across from the cemetery in which his wife and daughter are buried, um, and he he was a he was an MIT professor, and uh, is a computer genius, and he has access to supercomputing, and he has patents that he will not share because he's afraid they'll be used. In the wrong way he helps nick with them and i avoid the term deep fakes but that's what he can do uh, deep fakes if for those who don't know are the computing and uh now is so good that you can have people politicians particularly say things and seem as if they're actually saying these things when all they're doing is computers take snippets of old speeches and they can actually form the mouths of the politician uh, in a way in which it really seems as if that person is saying those things. And it's a scary possibility. It is. It's a very scary possibility. So that's also an issue in this book. But as Lenny says, do you know one of the reasons people believe in conspiracy theories? because sometimes they are they're true they're true so i i mean this is a book about a lot of things yeah but I, I can i just say one thing nick is a very cool character i i have to say we we're we're having a serious talk cause that's we always he and i always get into these deep conversations no, but, he's, but a, he's a badass He's action. a badass action character like he was described one, a, uh, with a uh,
1: degree in psychology I yes, should from, add
0: from Brooklyn College yes uh, complicated as, yeah he's a complicated guy but you know who I thought about as I was writing him Steve McQueen like he's part Steve McQueen in Bullet and he's part Jack Reacher and he drives a 69 a GTO and, uh, and he has a classic Norton motorcycle yeah you know so he's a cool and he's a character I could write for
1: 10 or 20 books I, I was mean, thinking you know, Lee Marvin yeah you know? I mean
0: that's always or great. Robert
1: Ryan these guys that were all had PTSD from the war yeah and
0: yeah see he up. doesn't see that's the thing about Nick that I wanted to avoid he doesn't have PTSD that that that's been done and it's done yeah. better than I could do it so Nick is the other side of it. He comes back and he's, I know what's right and wrong. He's not his. He's not as Nick says in the book. Some of my brothers and sisters who came home from the war was more were more scrambled than Humpty Dumpty. Uh, but Nick is the other. Has gone the other route. He he comes back sure of what's right and what's wrong, and he's very sharp and he's very clear about it. Um, but I, I just want, the, the book is real, to me, it's an interesting book because it's a, such a cool character, if I do say so myself. There's a lot of
1: action in yeah, this book, He's almost as too.
0: handsome as me, you know, <laughs> also. He, there's a lot of action in this book. It's not all moral questions, right? And that's the, that was a, a tricky, you know, it was a tightrope to walk, was how do you make a book entertaining? Because my first job as a writer, as a, particularly as a genre writer, you have to be entertaining. No one's really reads a book. as You know, today I'm really interested in moral questions. You know, uh, I mean, uh, philosophy was one of my majors, and I never woke up and said, you know why I want to go to school today? I really want to think about Descartes, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I try, because we, we always get in these deep conversations, and it is what interests me about the book is that but Nick is also a very cool character. Yeah. And I wish I had his GTO.
1: <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your your journalist character, Callie. Callie. Um Callie's, a, you know, uh,
0: she, she, she and and this is the way I write. I do not outline. So and and the guys who did the interview today like would they would not let this go that I the I wrote this book with the idea of Nick period. And then just started writing. So everything everything just grows out of, once I had the setting, you know the author Peter Spiegelman. Peter always says that uh, setting is the soil in which you grow your book. So once I had the setting and once I had an idea of Nick and started writing, this other stuff just occurred to me. And one of the things that occurred to me is how journalists are disrespected these days. I grew up in a world in which journalism was highly respected and 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 now it's you know, kind of uh, urinated on journalism. and so i I put in a young uh biracial uh, woman from uh, the Midwest who works for a small Brooklyn newspaper. There are, you know, other than the big newspapers in New York, each borough has their own kind of little, small newspapers. And in Brooklyn, it's the Brooklyn Eagle, which actually Walt Whitman used to write for. Really? When it was an important, yeah, when it was an important paper, and now obviously it's you know like a penny saver more. Do than.
1: they all have their own political
0: slant too? Yeah, yeah, they, you know, so and I don't know how, what their distribution is. is not very large, um, so. And really earnest and Callie is her name is Callie and she's from Chicago and she's very earnest she wants to be that kind of you know um kind of journalist we all used to respect and you know it's hard working for a small Brooklyn newspaper and so she sees she grabs onto she sees something Nick has done and won't let go uh and you got to respect her for that, and then she winds up being embroiled in Nick's, as we say in Italian, mishigas, uh mm-hmm. you know, troubles, and uh, you know. So that's that's always the, the interesting thing is Nick is much is a loner. He tries to be a loner, but people are always involving themselves in his life, and causing trouble, <laughs> you know. So Callie to me was a in, very interesting. Character. I, I, character is what makes books interesting for me. I, I, and I hope for, for the readers.
1: We were talking in the back about, you know, how many of your books, looking back, as the Gus Murphy series and certainly Mo Prager, some of you have read the great Mo Prager books. Um, you often have these two men, um, they don't have to be men, but, you know, kind of almost engaged in a, in a sort of dialogue. You know, yeah,
0: a moral dialogue. Yes, yeah, there's a there's always a moral center in the books. We're back to this again, uh, but they're like batting it know, back the, and right. forth. Yeah, there's Lenny in this series. Yep, um,
1: who's horrifically burned.
0: Right, and 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 he was saved. His life was saved by Nick, at some point. Yeah. So he's 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 deformed, and that's one of the reasons he lives in the bay. He shrunk his world into the basement. Of the synagogue, um, and he's not religious. It's just a place. <laughs> it seems a fitting place for him to live. Yeah, um, and uh, it was Israel Roth, right, in the in the Mo in the Mo books, and a Father Bill, yeah, in the in the Gus Murphy books. Because the protagonist can't be a moralist; it's boring. But. If you have, you know, in the in the Gus Murphy books, it was a retired retired priest. In uh, the Mo books, it was a concentration camp survivor, and in this book, it's uh, is, it's uh, Lenny Feld, who is this horrifically scarred and deformed guy, and Martellus Sharp too. Mm. The, the, there are two moral points of view, but the book is not about that, but it. I really want you, at the end of the book, to wonder what, in any of these situations, you would have done. Yeah. Because I don't know what I would have done.
1: I would have sacrificed.
0: I would have rolled over on you immediately. (laughs) I'm sure.
1: (laughs) I remember, you know, when you were talking about them, and we've we've really kind of said most of what we can say about this book. I don't want to give everything away, but it's a great, great read. And it's a real kick-ass page-turner as well as a book about ideas. Um, love the title, Sleepless City. Where did that come from? Um, it's an allusion to you know New York, the city
0: that never sleeps. But th- that's a cool phrase, the city that never sleeps. But sleeplessness, we've all, I mean, I, I, can, I don't know all of you, but I can guarantee you we've all had insomnia. Mm-hmm. And you know how you're a little edgy? When you're when you have insomnia, especially if you have it for yeah. a few days in a row, so sleepless city is, although it means the same thing as a city that never sleeps, it's different. You it, had a it, bunch it,
1: of sleep deprived, right, nutcases right, running around.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they're called the, <laughs> the Colemans. Uh, no, uh, and, and 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 sleeplessness has an edge to it. And it might—I could have just as easily called it "Restless City," because there's a rest. You know how when you're how ants you get when you're in, when insomnia takes over your life—that's the implication. There's a real edge here, yeah. um, you know. I and besides, the city that never sleeps is a very boring title.
1: Yeah. Well, where do you have? You finished the second book, right? Yes, Blind to Midnight
0: is the. The title. I like titles, by the way. So, yeah.
1: um, is there anything you can tell us about that? Or
0: yeah, it's it's as I said to you in the back. Um, the tendency for authors and television shows. Have you ever noticed if if the first season has a lot of action in it, the tendency is to say next season we have to have more. Everything has to be more and bigger. And I have never. Uh, subscribe to that belief i, I believe the s- second books should be smaller and more personal so while there's a ton of action in blind to midnight nick's involvement in 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 some ways is much more personal than well, it was you've in set
1: up movie. his world by now, in the first book. Right. So you don't have to do all that in the second book.
0: Right. Now, I also know the third, I have in my head the third book, and if I get a contract, hopefully I will, I hope I get a contract to do 20 of these books because the world I have made will lend itself to. And also, we've left out one, really, the mysterious blonde woman character. Yes. Well, we're not going to say too much about her, but... There's there's lots of I've set up a world in which I could write endless books about Nick, so you know.
1: Well, you know, I mentioned Gus Murphy, character that near and dear to my heart and a lot of your readers. Um, I understand that you have finished a third one. I have finished a third. Will we it's see called, it? All uh, the all buried things,
0: and I hope we'll see it. I mean, someday we'll see it. I can't say when, and I can't say who will publish it, but it'll be out there someday. He was, he was too good a character, and too, the people love those books too much to you know, ignore them. And I had to finish that book. Today, the interview today, somebody said, have you ever started a book and then just left it? And I said, no. Like, if I, I have... Now, I have 32 published novels, but there, I've written three that didn't get published, like in between there over the course of the years um, because if I have an idea that I think this is one of the bad things about not outlining because it's only when you get to the end of a book do you realize oh, that idea didn't quite sustain 300 pages. So, you know, but it's worth the risk to me because if I don't know what's coming next the re- and I'm excited by it, I my theory is the reader will be excited by it.
1: Is the, do you have any temptation to kind of dip back into Mo's world at all, or um, is that a, is that done?
0: No, I I've written several short stories in which Mo was featured, uh, because Mo is an interesting character. It's always here we are again, uh, as I w- said in one of my interviews. I've I've lived by a very simple motto: it's the character stupid. Uh, so uh, Mo Mo, I had said everything I had to say through Mo in 300 page books, but there's always some incidents in Mo's life, which I could always, so I revisit Mo
1: in short stories. Before we open it up to questions, there was an incident, and I'm remem- misremembering it, but involving gunplay in your biography that oh. you witnessed. Yeah, I, when I a, was
0: 15 years old.
1: Do you mind telling that
0: story? Sure, I, I, when I was 15 years, in Sheepshead Bay, when I was 15 years old, I was working at Baskin-Robbins. Um, and there's an area near where I grew up called Sheepshead Bay. And it's like basically a fishing village. You know, And that's not what most people think of when they think of Brooklyn. Uh, so um, I was walking to work. It was a beautiful day. It was a beautiful summer day. And Sheepshead Bay Road bends. It, it it comes north, and then it bends towards the bay, towards the water. And I that called the elbow in Sheepshead Bay Road. And I'm at the elbow of Sheepshead Bay Road, and I hear a gunshot. Now, don't ask me how I knew it was a gunshot. I knew it wasn't a firecracker, and I knew it wasn't a truck backfiring. And like an idiot, I ran towards it. You know, 15-year-olds are not the brightest people on Earth. So I run towards it, and I get to the post office, and I see a a kind of middle-aged man who would be younger than I am now, but a middle-aged man in shorts, a white shirt, a white button-down shirt, uh, socks and sandals fall into the... Off the sidewalk into the street, and he's got a dime size, eh, little dime sized red dot in his abdomen. So I'm I'm 15 years old. I mean, even in Brooklyn, you don't understand. I didn't know anything about internal bleeding. I didn't know what. And and, and everybody comes out, but nobody will do anything because there's a very famous psychological study is, if I was alone, I would have acted. But when you're in a group of people, everybody's waiting for the next person to do something. So for a few minutes, we, not minutes, it felt like minutes, for a few seconds, everybody just stopped and stared and looked at each other. And then somebody came out of the post office and put a, a something on, like a sweater or something under his head, and a few and a minute or two later, it's near Coney Island Hospital. I grew up in Coney Island, and the ambulance comes, and they come out and they start trying, you know they they check his heart, and they they look and they feel his abdomen, right, which I don't understand why, but it was hard. It was hard because there was a lot of blood in in there. And then his chest starts heaving like crazy. They put him on the gurney. And they're doing the benzy bag thing, you know, the, the squeezing, and his chest stops. And you could, you know, I'd never seen anybody die before, you know, but you knew he was dead. Then something happened that I will never forget. This will stay with me till the day I die. They took his sandal and his, le- his left sandal <clears throat> and his sock off, dropped him on the sidewalk and ran a tongue depressor along the bottom of his left foot. So I never understood what that was about. Now, my wife's an occupational therapist, and she explained to me that what they were doing was checking for something called the Babinski reflex. And she explained there are only two people who don't have Babinski reflexes, newborns and the dead. So that's one of the ways that they check to make sure that he was dead. Right, that's right. If you rub that, right. And if your toes don't curl, yeah, you're either a newborn or you're dead. And so, and then that image of the ambulance pulling away and his sock and sandal laying on the sidewalk. Yeah. That's it was really, you know, you can imagine in the mind of a 15 year old and of course now they would never have taken him away they would have waited because they were sure he was dead they would have, would have waited for the cops to come you know uh the and and um that would be evidence
1: you know uh, what was the babinski babinski b a b
0: Babin, Babinski reflex.
1: I was going to say that that's not exactly a sexy title, but no, uh, no. That, and and a, obviously,
0: the doctor who discovered it was named Babinski. Oh, Babinski. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, so I tell my wife, the only reason I married you was so you could explain that to me. <laughs> um, but that obviously colored. Uh, I also had a friend in eighth grade who was stabbed through the heart and killed. Um, and, and, and what happened is that obviously had a you know, f- profound effect on me even, even if after suppressing the memory for many years. It's because what it showed me was that serious crime is not funny. I mean, there are people who write funny crime books. Now, that doesn't mean there's no humor in my books, but the, the part about the violence is not funny to me. Did you see who shot No, no, it's never been. It's still an open case. Really? Yeah, uh, it's still an open case. I. You wrote an
1: essay about that, didn't you? Yeah, called
0: "No Roses for Bubby." Yes. uh, About how you know there's crime that seems funny, and then there's crimes that the my my uh, mother's parents, who emigrated from the Ukraine, uh, owned a uh, mom and pop store in Hell's Kitchen, in Manhattan and um that was a territory run by dutch schultz oh yeah and dutch schultz had a crush on my grandmother uh which was hard for me to believe you know because she was an old russian lady by the time was, <laughs> you know and she all, was and, hot back know, in her day yeah right? you know Miss of 1898
1: you know uh and uh he he